Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Mitch Epstein returns to the show. Steidel has just published Epstein's newest book, Property Rights. Featuring 197 pictures across 288 pages, Property Rights examines the relationship between the United States, land, and the impact of the American nation on the people who live here. The book was edited by Susan Bell and includes texts by both Epstein and Bell. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $75. Epstein has published 15 books, including In India, American Power, one of my all-time favorites, and Family Business. On the second segment, Milton Avery at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. But first, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. And then Mitch Epstein, after the break. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single-gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries and a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngen closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Mitch Epstein, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. Across the book, there are a series of eight conflicts taking place across the United States, almost always on American land itself. I think we're, we're, we're all accustomed to thinking of American land as a site of conflict, whether you know that's in Concord, Massachusetts, in the first American West in 1635, or in 1861 in the Civil War, and so on. So as part of your core idea, the, the idea that brings together these eight events will, and places that we'll talk about as we go along here, that conflict continues in America and on American land, but not in the same ways civil war and such that we're used to thinking of it and that as a result we should broaden our ideas of what the conflicts that are that are happening here are i was introduced to the idea of land being in conflict by my experience going to the standing rock resistance action you know laid in the action in um, early 2017 and the 
fundamental question that came up for me at Standing Rock was the question of ownership, because the essential conflict there was between the coalition of indigenous tribal nations and water protectors who questioned the intervention of the Dakota Access Pipeline. And the pipeline running through those North Dakota lands that were close to the reservation and putting some of the tribal nations at environmental risk also raised the fundamental question of the ownership of these lands, period, and brought up treaty rights going back to the 19th century that the United States forged with many of the tribal nations. And so... Here, the land was the site of so much complex history that preceded this very moment. And the, the complex kind of power struggles that were playing out between individuals, community, corporations, government, and even environment and the land itself, what rights does the land have, raised, opened the door for me to look in a broader way at conflicts that were centered around land in this four-year period, which essentially um, overlaps with the, the Trump administration. And so land always had something to do with it, but I thought of land because we define it, I think, as Americans, as property. And property implies this concept of ownership and who owns the land, at what cost, what consequences, and and all the complex questions that that provokes. And so some of the narratives that I explored through the course of this period, the land is, is an important part, an element or character of uh, that's central to the narrative. But I think I enabled myself to, as I thought about property and the ownership of property, to extend the the very idea here of what property is so it's it the project begins with land but it really does kind of extend out to the concept of our of our bodies as property of course as people we live on land and we are tied to all of the issues that you know that kind of get provoked here i should point out two things as as, as we go forward each of the groups of work within the book feature not just land and landscape, but people, portraits of people, as if the two ideas are, or the two addresses are inseparable. And the construct of the book, and indeed what, what, what you just said, reminds me very much that a founding figure of what would become the American landscape tradition in art and poetry and, and other media is, is Ralph Waldo Emerson. And in proposing landscape as the American thing, he offers a direct challenge to capitalism in so doing. You know, his definition of landscape questions the value of property rights in a, in a, in a way that is, I think, both fundamental and, and under-considered in the 180 years since. The book begins with a prologue, eight photographs, images of uh, what might be considered classically beautiful American lands. And then, and then proceeds through a number of sites, including Standing Rock, which you, which you mentioned, the American-Mexican borderlands, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and on. Why did you choose to start with eight pictures of, holy cow, that's pretty, beautiful pictures? Well, 
I really thought in some way about really the form of, think of opera, and wanted to set a landscape that conjured what American land as we know it was like in some referential way before colonialism, before we settled these lands. And so part of, I think, what brought me to that idea was the time that I spent photographing in a number of the National Monument sites that were called into question by uh, the former Interior Secretary Zinke and Donald Trump. You know, the diminishing of some of these sites from Bears Ears to Grand Staircase Escalante. And that as a way in to this project, which asks fundamental questions about our cultural relationship to land and sense of ownership of it, that it would be meaningful and a kind of a poetic device to, in a very brief way, lay out this landscape that, as it's pictured, is largely un uninhabited. So when you you know, unbridled. And the last picture in that sequence of eight pictures was made at, at Rushmore. And Rushmore was a, a pivotal moment for me in this project because I had to think hard about the fact that I didn't really know the history of Rushmore until I went to Standing Rock and spent time at Pine Ridge and went, and went back there. And that it was revelatory to me. And I think that that image in a symbolic way in terms of the history of Rushmore and that it was um, formerly sacred or still is sacred land to the Lakota people and was appropriated through the violation of treaty rights and then even more deeply by taking a site that had that has historical sacred significance and, um, and carving the president's heads and into that landscape was a way in to Stanley Rock and the narratives that follow. The only text by you in the book is an address of that experience and that history, and it comes at the end of the book. I thought it might be fun to access ideas in the book from here forward, kind of through specific pictures from each series. And I wanted to start with a picture in the Standing Rock group titled Badlands National Park, Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, South Dakota. And it's a, a snowy landscape featuring, you know, the stark landscape features, stark, stark spiky landscape features of the Badlands. We'll have an image of it on, on manpodcast.com. And I wanted to start with this picture because you do something here compositionally that you do in a lot of the pictures in the book, and especially in the prologue. I think six of the eight pictures in the prologue. And that is the picture seems to be composed with a question mark, um, a literal question mark in the land in the middle of the picture. In the history of American art, there's a very famous question mark. Thomas Cole's The Oxbow is a question mark, both as it was in the land at the time, but especially in the way that Cole painted it. Were you mindfully either looking for or maybe editing into the book <laughs> question marks as a way of kind of doubling down on our examination of these places and their, their histories? I think my job as an artist in a very principled way is to is for the work to ask questions. I don't it's certainly never prescriptive or or, or, or providing answers to the to the fundamental questions that get raised in the work. Trying to sort of 
imagine that picture though and how it how it provokes a question or what that question might well, be. Well in in the land there's a giant question mark that comes into the foreground of the picture. So as our eye follows the base of the badlands into kind of the valley between the the rock formations, it forms the top of a question mark and as a creek or a little bit of runoff from the melting snow comes into the foreground of the picture, it forms a literal question mark. Well, maybe in some unknowing, unconscious way. There's the artifact that I that I incorporate into the at the end of the Standing Rock passage, which so I had spent time that very day that I made the picture that you're referencing with Alex Whiteplume, who was an important elder on the Pine Ridge Reservation and Spending time with him just, it was dizzying because he was speaking in English, but about a world that was very foreign. And so, you know, the artifact, I think, is important because it helped me to more deeply empathize with the place that Native Americans find themselves. The drawing, just for our listeners here was a very simple kind of drawing on the back of a discarded envelope where he made this kind of crisscrossing set of lines to show me that in the course of a day, a Lakota native has to leave this space, the Lakota people, this cosmological world, cross into the American world of going to the post office out of the bank or uh, to the Apple store and so on. And each time they cross that line, there's an effort involved because it's not really theirs. And so it was powerful to listen to him. And I think that as I left his house and drove into that landscape and tried to look at it anew and to understand something about it in terms of its meaning to the Lakota people. It's so harsh in some way and seems so uninhabitable. And yet it's theirs and they cherish it and see it in a way so differently than I think we do. (laughs) It's not other, it's of them. And I think that the very concept of ownership and respect for land is one that, you know, that I, that I came away from those conversations with him and with others that really just shook my own foundation. And so, you know, looking into a landscape that like that to, to try to, to, access somehow its mystery and its and its long historical meaning is 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 a huge challenge so uh, my head was filled with questions but certainly i hope i didn't make a picture that was confusingly questioning but that one just just is arresting and that in a way you know the thing is it's like here with a picture where you don't really have any trace of you know i think one of the most challenging things for myself as a as an artist photographer is how to make a picture when you're in nature without any remnant or evidence of human habitation or you know some kind of cultural sign how to conjure that how to to see it clearly and to access it and to, and to use the camera as a way as a tool to to describe and to inhabit it that can bring meaning that that can help us to see it in a way that we that we haven't that can that can access its, its wildness. And so, you know, often with people, the pictures are, you know, the peop- it's the people that were behind 
these resistance actions and who that I met along the way that really fueled my my journey and that turned me in different directions that I wouldn't have otherwise had, had have gotten to experience and I'm so appreciative of that. I'm I'm I guess an historian of land and landscape and I found that as I went through this book I was almost eager for more photographs of people because it's the pictures of the people that underline why all the rest of it matters in the context of the contested American project of the present, to say nothing of the contested American project of the past. (laughs) The section after Standing Rock is titled Borderlands. It focuses on uh, land along the United States-Mexico border, an era region that has been contested since the 1840s, at least in the context of the American project. I'm going to kind of cheat here and ask about two pictures. One is Bisbee, Arizona from 2017. It is the first picture in the Borderlands section. And it shows, you know, a bulletin board on which people have stapled notices, you know, notices of all kinds, and and then removed those notices and put down more staples. And over time, there's this topography of posters and staples, and then more staples, and then even more staples. And it's really about the most directly metaphorical picture maybe in the entire book is this picture your address of how the land and specifically the borderlands region has been contested and changed i don't know that i would apply such a a literal reading i see and that picture was just a kind of an, an accidental gift it was so in a way you know i set I set certain boundaries or rules just so that I uh, don't go completely astray as I go about my day and, and weeks with a project like this, which is already so unwieldy and ambitious. I came across that you know notice board as I drove through Disney, which has a you know a, a very charged history as a copper mining town and. I really was just drawn to the board initially because it was like four o'clock in the afternoon and and I thought, hmm, what am I going to post on Instagram today? So I just took my phone out and I uh, I kind of walked around just in this somewhat, you know, kind of charmed, you know, like n- nostalgic part of the part of the old town um, in, sat in the shadow of the mine. And I went and I saw this board and I realized that there were certain words like nation see as a great that so in a way spoke to the moment and it was the palimpsest of paper photographed somehow with my phone where the paper and the texture and quality of the paper and its sort of deterioration from being exposed to the elements spoke to a lot of what I I think I felt about looking at the American landscape and the the layers of taking something and from it and not necessarily renewing and giving it back. And so, yes, there is this kind of overt metaphor. And I think it also just was exciting to me as a picture because I realized that a landscape can also be constructed on a flat surface. And so for me, it was a it was a departure. And yet it was a liberation because it pointed to the fact that I didn't have to so strictly adhere to my own conventions about 
was that I was photographing within these domains. You know, when you drive down that road and you see that open pit copper mine that's all kind of fenced off and you begin to understand, learn and read a little bit about, and there was an incredible film, I don't know if you're aware of it, I think it's called Bisbee 17, which is a documentary film that also involves performance and reenactments this related to the history of this union uprising that occurred in 2017, where basically, you know, half of the those that were employed or near to half wanted to join the union. There was a big standoff and all these people got put on a train and sent, I think, into New Mexico and just, you know, told were told that if they ever came back, that they would be killed, you know, murdered and so on. So there was this this. It's like the pictures, They do you need to know that looking at this picture? No, but I think that the, the knowledge, what's interesting to me is that sometimes I make pictures and I end up learning a lot more as a result of having made the picture. And I think that the pictures, if they can be a vehicle to a deeper understanding of the histories that, you know, that precede them and that, that if I can draw on infusing some of those histories and knowing more and building and complicating the references, the pictures will have more ballast and more potential to evoke and to engage the viewer in multiple ways. And I think that that's, I think that is my kind of fundamental gambit, gambit as a picture. And also, you know, I made these pictures uh, comparable, similar to American Power. I made these large mural sized prints because I was dealing with this subject with American Power that was about super size in a cultural sense and big energy. And here I felt also working in landscape, um, beginning at Standing Rock, where even the picture that you described it opens up in a way when I make a larger print, and and it it, it demands that kind of response and engagement from the viewer. And so to take this picture of these, this palimpsest of these, of this, uh, th these notices on this board and to make it many times its real scale size, uh, also transformed it in a way that was valuable in terms of its image and how the image would be then, then read. But I think it speaks also to just the fragility of the landscape you know, and, and nature and, you know, just the, the sort of eroding quality of paper out there, the things that we make, how their timeline is limited. There's a picture within the Borderlands group that is similarly direct and similarly complicated, but in a different way. And I'm thinking of Saguaro, Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, which is a picture of, um, I think, a single saguaro tree cactus, which is folded into and over and onto and through and every other preposition I can think of <laughs> itself that seems to stand for both the complication of a regional history and nat natural history, but also for perseverance and persistence. There are a lot of persevering and persistence pictures across the whole book, it must be said. When you're out there in Oregon Pipe, there are like a zillion cactus, of course. What what, what attracted you to this one? <laughs> well, it was just the cactus itself. It was an extraordinary example of a cactus. But when you're out there, you know, and this, I think, was on this road, which is called the Devil's Highway. There's a Spanish name for it, which I don't have in my head. You know, there's a lot of passage out there. 
of migrants that are crossing into the United States. So that's a lot of what was on my mind. And I was spending time with human rights activists who were, you know, bringing water or paying attention and seeing in what ways they could support that migrant passage and those that were, you know, under these kind of very severe conditions. And so I think in a way it's, a, it's interesting because I think that picture is a little bit similar to the image that you called attention to from um, the Badlands. It's dizzying when you're out there because, yeah, all the cactus in some way, the, the saguaro, I mean, they're just, they're very special. And so it is kind of hard to know sort of what to, which one to hone on. But there's something kind of a bit anthropomorphic here, I think, with that one in terms of it's, it's such a beautiful example of how eccentric and special a saguaro cactus can be. And and, you know, I was spending time right then and there also as the border wall was getting put through organ pipe and, and you know, I was seeing all these saguaro that they, you know, that they, they, they tried to move some of them and replant them and then they died or they would just cut them down because uh, they were on this mission to build the wall through this landscape. And, and so looking at some, looking at the cactus like that, that's found this way to endure the severity of the desert at times, long drought, these harsh conditions. And that sort of standing in contrast with what kind of we do to protect the idea that we have of, of land as, as national property at all costs, you know, uh, at the cost of exterminating species that can't travel back and forth across animal life. So I think it's just to sort of, again, to to look at nature in a situation, you know, in a landscape like this and to see it for itself without overtly assigning meaning, but to but to, to, to allow for meaning to to be communicated in very individual ways um, in terms of what the reader brings to the picture. The next group in the book is called Lancaster Stand, and it addresses how a group of residents in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, worked to try to prevent another pipeline project, this one through through Lancaster County. And this group of pictures begins with Conestoga, Pennsylvania, a 2017 photograph. It's a picture of the sort that is a standard of American mid-19th century painting. A farm, a, a, a hill or a mountain behind it, in this case a hill, and fields often at harvest time in the foreground. I, I don't think Americans culturally constructed of white think of this kind of a landscape as being contested, but it has been contested throughout American history. Indeed, it was an 1823 Supreme Court decision that determined that European-style farming of the sort that American painters began painting in the 1830s and 40s is what gave United States citizens the right to take native land. Why did you want to start a group of pictures about a pipeline project in the American East, indeed the American Northeast, with such a classic, such a standard, both of, I guess, the American landscape itself, but also American art history? Well, it was very pointed for me. I think it's an echo of what, what I did with the prelude, which is to set the landscape as I imagined it before we settled it. And so at Lancaster, what was at stake? What was at stake was a way of life and 
a a landscape here that was unaltered. This was, you know, this was outside the, you know, this, this was a picture in a way that that showed what this landscape looked like before the intervention. You know, a pipeline, you know, be, being put through the landscape, and so I think it was. It's it's a kind of a the sequencing. I think is always uh, it sort of finds its right place as as the book takes larger shape. But it felt important here to show the landscape in a kind of more unadulterated, bucolic way than to begin with it altered. I mean, so the first two chapters, the first chapter, the Stanley Rocket begins with a with a picture of a sign that I made on land that has been bought back by uh, contingent of native communities in the Black Hills uh, called Peshla, and there's this handwritten sign, Indian Land, and the sign itself is very beautiful, and it was just, you know, so you 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 start there, you know, very boldly walk, you know, moving into that passage with this upfront question, the second passage, the borderlands begins with the picture that you just, we talked about from Bisbee, very overt in a metaphorical way. And I guess it just felt like right to start here with a picture that in some way showed what was at stake and what these people in Lancaster County were fighting for and put themselves on the line for. So, you know, I'm not I'm not overthinking it, but I'm certainly considering how the individual, you know, passages work on their in their own right, but also within the larger sequence of these multiple narratives, because there is a lot of range and many topics. Uh, so especially the entrance and exit points from these sequences, I think, are, become very important when you look at the whole. The first time I read through the book... I found myself when I would reach the end of a section, I would stop and go back to the first picture in the section. I mean, I found I would, without intentionally doing it, I was just doing it. It was, there's a real clarity to the way the book unfolds. I kept thinking of the word narrative. I mean, it feels it's, it's a visually narrative project. The, the section after Lancaster stand is called fires and floods, and it's full of exactly what it promises. <laughs> This section, pretty much every section of the book features at least one picture of uh, an individual tree, a tree portrait, if you will. Fires and Floods includes more tree portraits than any other section. I'll give some titles. We'll have the images on manpodcast.com, but I'll give the titles just so the listener has some idea of the range of fire and flood landscape we're talking about. So uh, there's a picture of Dinsmore, California, Jekyll Island, Georgia, the campfire in Paradise, California, with a with a Buddha sculpture at its base, old growth cypress trees in Atchafalaya Basin in Louisiana, and there's one picture also of the Port of New Orleans, which doesn't sound like it should have a tree in it, but it does. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you must have known you were putting so many tree portraits in fires and floods. Why? What about that worked for you? Well, fires and floods, it too is a kind of sprawling big subject and one that I intersected with in this this period i'm drawn to trees and i think trees they are that i think they're a running light motif in my work because they they often have histories that are longer than what we know in terms of this lifespan of a, of a human being and so sometimes the trees i think they they, they have an important place because they 
They speak to the longer history of a particular site. But I think that they also conjure so much about our relationship to nature. I mean, the first picture, I mean, I certainly took some license, I think, with the sequencing here with this particular section. The first, the first juxtaposition of pictures, you don't even really see fires and floods. You see this cannabis uh, farmer who I made a portrait of who's looks like he's definitely enjoying some some good weed. He was <laughs> sitting in a chair, kind of like shell-shocked. And I I juxtaposed that picture, uh, that, that image, the portrait of him, which is just, it's very engaging. It's just, it's, it's maybe he, in some sense, is also a bit of a metaphor for me, probably similar age, with this tree that I photographed um, as I was crossing the mountains in uh, Northern California on my way to Humboldt County, where my associate, Ryan, he said, did you see that? And I didn't. I said, no, I didn't, because we were driving in fog, and I turned around and went back. And the tree, and you see a lot of this out west where, you, you know, you, you, people put sneakers in trees. Uh, but I thought this must have been like an art installation because there were just so many. And we were out absolutely in the middle of nowhere. And maybe, too, this is a bit uh, overt as a, you know, in a, in a metaphorical realm. But it was this unnerving communion of what people do and the tree in a way kind of, you know, enduring itself through it. I mean, I don't know how happy the tree is to have all these sneakers. But it is a kind of, in an existential way, I think, this kind of environmental kind of, you know, siren call. And then, you know, you go through, I don't know, it's like people do things. They put, you know, I mean, I went to paradise after the fires and, you know, there was that tree on the side of the mountain that I photographed that was that was scorched, but the Buddha looked like it had been there too, but was was still still intact. So I don't know. I think that the the, the trees become a kind of a they become a a light motif that I appreciate because it. I feel more aware of my own vulnerability, but also nature's vulnerability at this particular period in time where we're not paying enough attention to the you know grave consequences of, of climate crisis. That, that's interesting. You're probably the most significant photographer of American trees since Carlton Watkins. And I think his reasons for making pictures of trees, we don't know for sure, were exactly opposite. Yeah, that's a very generous... Thing for you to say, and I'm I'm doing my best, but I'm not sure I can live up to that. Well, I can't think of who would be second. So, <laughs> other than you, who would be second? Well, I love trees, and I I remember you know my beginnings as a photographer, and how you know from the the somewhat strict kind of classical school that I was trained in, there were certain subjects that were just sort of that were just too, too loaded, too contrived, too sort of out of reach, and from sunsets to, you know, to animals, to babies, to whatever. And trees were, were one of them. And I think that everyone's, everyone has some kind of relationship and photographs trees, but I think it's how to picture them in a way that can help us to see them freshly, but to do so in a way where they still have their, their, they still have their own their own character. It's a very, it's a very delicate, it's a very delicate dance. I'm skipping a bit here, but in the Tree of Life pictures, the photograph Tree of Life Synagogue Memorial, which is the first picture of that group too, is also a tree picture. 
And I think it it is a really good example of what you just said about kind of the the many roles trees have. Uh, there are probably like five roles the pine tree has in this picture, everything from providing a site of memorial to providing a site of police tape, keeping people out, being wrapped around the tree to to keep people out of a dangerous place or what might be structurally a dangerous place to just tree as metaphor for life. Some of what I, you know, I do as a photographer is is very much defined by what I come across. I mean, even if I feel the license to be able to alter what's in front of the camera, I still have to start with the elements in front of me that are at hand. And, you know, going to the site uh, where the massacre took place at the at the, at the at the tree of life synagogue it, you know i don't know that i would have photographed that tree had it not been for the way in which these flower offerings were laid you know were, were were laid in front of it where somehow the offerings the flower bouquets merged together with the tree so there's something really you know kind of transformative that that takes shape there let me let me just jump in really quickly to to note that they look like a flowering bush growing out of the base of the tree. I mean, you wouldn't almost. I mean, you would almost think that's what they were. <laughs> yeah. So, but then you know, then you have the caution police tape that wraps around the tree a little bit higher up, and so there is this tension between this sort of transformative event where trees and flowers merge together, and that's there's this kind of radiance, this kind of glory, but at the same time, this reference to something of danger, something that is troubling that's happened there. And so I think with American Power, I really learned how to employ this idea of beauty in my work as a way to complicate the resonance of uh, of a site or a thing, a situation where something troubling has happened, something unnerving. And so I think that that happens here. There is this intersection of of beauty and terror. And it spoke in some kind of beautiful way to to what was taking place. I was there, you know, just days after um, the tragedy, and it was this gathering place. It was a memorial. People were coming to make offerings, to make prayers, and they weren't just Jewish. They were they were from all walks of faith, and it was in this place that was, to my mind, very utopic and and maybe a bit elegiac because it was the home place for Mister Rogers, right? So Squirrel Hill. Outside Pittsburgh, in this kind of, you know, sort of very protected sort of bourbon enclave neighborhood community. And so, you know, one where you wouldn't expect something horrible like this to to happen. So, you know, but one, this, this idea of a neighborhood that was very much, you know, mythologized by, by Mr. Rogers. And so... These are, again, these are the kind of things that I carry with me. And I had just seen that Mr. Rogers film just weeks before this whole thing happened. And that's when I decided, oh, you know what? I just, I'm just going to get in the car and drive there and have, have the experience of being there and maybe make pictures. It wasn't clear. But I was moved. And that sometimes my way of figuring out and, and articulating my own emotional response to things that happen and to being in a place is through making pictures because I have to 
I have to do the work to define them and to make sense of them for myself. And the the challenge of making pictures helps me to, to hone in, to work harder. It's sometimes things are so painful, you just want to turn away from them because, you know, we're, we have our limits. And so I think that, you know, through a lot of this work, I somehow summoned the strength and the courage to look at some things that were just very uncomfortable and to respond to them, but not in ways that were just simply one-dimensional, but that that hopefully um, were multidimensional and that make it possible for others to experience them and to bring something of their own experience, but also to, uh, to, 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 to be more truthful. Seems like the right moment for the host to note that you're Jewish and we're talking about a massacre at a synagogue. For, for time reasons, I'm going to skip forward to the monuments section, which is the last grouping in the book. There, there are three pictures here I want to talk about. They, they do some similar work and do it differently. The first is a picture of a building called the St. Louis Hotel and Slave Exchange in New Orleans, and pretty much the only part of the name of the building that's visible in your picture, and indeed perhaps on the front of the building, is the word, it's the fragment of a word, and, and, and the word that is visible is change. And the other two pictures from this grouping that I want to bring up are two pictures of historical markers, of markers that mark the site of the Stono Rebellion, a time, uh, the large, and maybe maybe across the entire British experience in North America, uh, the site of the largest slave revolt in what will become the United States. And it's a site that is just an empty grass and clover field bordered by cyclone fence a site not especially valued apparently by the American people or the American state. All it gets is these two inexpensive as it gets markers. The reason I bring these up together is because in virtually every one of the eight sections of the book, you include pictures where text is important, where handwriting is important, where, where how words work is important. That's not something you've done in every body of your work across your career, but it's pretty present here. And I wonder what attracted you to to text and making use of it in you know these four or so years. Text gets employed in a couple different ways. I mean, one, I've always had an interest in text in my pictures because they they add layers. If you look at look closely, you know, text words they they are a kind of running currency through my work with the monuments i went out to find monuments uh, first in new orleans uh, which was such a you know significant city for the importation of of slaveries to fuel the plantations and there are really there there is hardly any monuments to speak of to to that horrific history in that city and so, you know, the one, the hotel uh, where you have this little, you know, but b- those three pictures have these little uh, kind of historical markers that describe what took, t- t- you know, t- t- took place there. Change, it was, I'm assuming once written exchange. I didn't peel back the layers, but I think that that's a, it's a, it's, it's a fair assumption. But those pictures that you call attention to, they were meaningful to me in the sense that these histories were not one that we, as a culture until very recently, um, wanted to honor. I mean, that I, this gives me just an opportunity to, to make mention of the fact that, you know, the book, my, 
you know, my work is, is, is as an image maker making pictures. But throughout this project, so much of my experience was, was the result of spending time with activists. And it was, you know, beginning at Stanley Rock, where I listened to Native American elders, interviewed them, had extended conversations, expanded my own perspective as to what was taking place here, um, and then decided with my my wife and collaborator on editing the project, Susan, to, to draw on those texts as this kind of, you know, as these voices that are kind of running, you know, th- through the book as a kind of counterpart to, to my voice to give context. So, yes, in my voice, I, I do it through the pictures where I can draw on language, whether it's the pictures in Bisbee or the... You know, the the graffiti that's just layered and ecstatic and emphatic on the Robert E. Lee monument that's now come down in, in, in Richmond, but that was so pivotal to the to an expression that was very particular to that moment in time in that city that was so burdened by the monumentalization of the Confederacy and kept out people of color. And so I think, you know, where I can use language and, you know, as you called attention to with those two signs from the, the, the rebellion, it's fascinating to see the way in which we have chosen historically to memorialize history when it's just in a way very pedestrian. You might happen to notice if you were looking for it with a sign on the road versus monumental statues and plinths and so on to Confederacy. And so I don't know. I think that it's all good fodder. <laughs> what can I say? Maybe that's another way to end this. But but yeah, I mean, we haven't talked about those texts, but I think that they... You know, as an as a photographer who's interested in even the 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 form of the of of the book, I just felt like I always feel like I'm I'm facing choices with how to to tell how to define narrative and you know the the, the narratives that are playing out within my pictures. I mean, the book is a very different opportunity than an exhibition, and I don't ever show this work in the way in which I have structured and develop it in terms of its narratives as a book. And that to me is thrilling because it's its own set of rooms as a book. And I, you know, this was, this was, it was important for me to be expansive and inclusive here in the ways that I chose to be by bringing in the voices of, uh, of the activists. As a way of putting an exclamation point on, I guess, both the book and this section of the book and our conversation let me note that the site of the Stono Rebellion is outside Charleston, South Carolina, and it is, as, as we've both noted, ba- basically just an empty field that's been ignored. It is 12 miles from White Point Garden, the grand, lush, dramatic public park at the southern tip of the city of Charleston, um, and at the heart of, of White Point Garden, both physically and otherwise, is one of the most over-the-top public sculptures in America. It's called Confederate Defenders of Charleston. It is exactly what it sounds like. It is Teutonic in in the way that 1930s America was fascinated by Teutonism in ways that will, in turn, impress a young Adolf Hitler. And the monument was designed by a Bostoner 
Herman Atkins McNeil, it's been there for 90 years. Meanwhile, the Stono site is empty. Mitch Epstein, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Tyler, for what you do and for um, our conversation today. Much appreciated. Let's maybe not wait 10 years, <laughs> but, <laughs> but when the time is right, I wish you a nice holiday. And again, thanks. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis, Missouri, that believes in the power of direct experiences with art. Hannah Wilkie developed an unabashed, boundary-crossing art practice that includes sculpture, photography, video, and works on paper. On view through January 16th, 2022 at the Pulitzer, Hannah Wilkie Art for Life's Sake is the first major presentation of the artist's work in over a decade. This career-spanning exhibition encompasses the full arc of Wilkie's practice from the 1960s to her untimely death in 1993. The exhibition offers new perspectives on this critical and influential artist, revealing her to be a trailblazer who was as invested in advancing the position of women in society as she was in developing a unique artistic practice. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents... MFAH plus U equals a dynamic duo. Discover the duality within the MFAH's major lineup of fall exhibitions and find your duo. Explore the parallels between two of the foremost figures in 20th century art in Calder Picasso. Witness the first exhibition devoted to Georgia O'Keeffe's work with a camera in Georgia O'Keeffe Photographer. Unravel juxtapositions in the legacy of the African diaspora through historical and contemporary works in Afro-Atlantic histories. See some of the most significant paintings from the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist movements in Incomparable Impressionism from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Plan your visit at mfah.org slash dynamic duo. Welcome back. Next up, Edith Devaney joins me to discuss Milton Avery, a survey of the artist's career at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. The exhibition features about 70 paintings Avery made between the 1910s and the mid-1960s and emphasizes Avery's interest in color. It's on view at the Modern in Fort Worth through January 30th. It was co-organized by the Royal Academy in London and the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford, along with the Modern in Fort Worth. The catalog for the exhibition was published by the Royal Academy. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $45. Edith Devaney, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. In your essay on Milton Avery in the exhibition catalog, you start in what I, I thought was an interesting place. And you start with Hans Hoffmann, who was, of course, a German emigre to the United States. And with Hoffmann celebrating Avery as a great colorist. Why is contextualing Avery's work within Hoffmann's framing and understanding of it a useful way for our considering of Avery's achievement? Hoffman kind of occupies a very interesting position because he was considered to be one of the abstract expressionist painters, one of the, the first generation. But he also had this European connection. So, of course, he was German. He had he had taught. He had set up a teaching school in Germany. He had mixed in German artistic society. So he knew a lot of the very significant European modernist painters. He'd spent time in France. And when he came over to America, he set up his own school. So he was a huge influence and he was also bringing considerable knowledge of European painting. 
So for him to have singled out an artist who wasn't his student, like Lee Krasner was his student, and through Lee Krasner he got to know Pollock, of course, to single out someone like Avery, who was a very American artist, but to recognize that he was doing something enormously significant. And when I say that, it's not just enormously significant within America, but it was, it's, you know, it's that comparison to Europe as well. And because he had such authority because of this particular position with in the artist community in America at the time, it would have really resonated for him to have said what he said. One of the reasons I think Hoffman's framing is important and interesting is that Avery straddles, as you note in the catalog, straddles American Impressionism, which is, must be said, not the, not the best of American art, and Abstract Expressionism. How has that in-betweenism impacted how we've considered Avery? And I guess by we, I mean not just Americans, but kind of the field as a whole. It is that difficulty of, you know, not only was he slightly seen as someone adrift at the time, that's still the case because we have this horrible habit of wanting to categorize artists, almost tidy up these artistic movements. And it's such a, it always strikes me as such a random thing because, you know, particularly when you think of abstract expressionism and and how they as a group didn't see themselves as a cohesive artistic group. They may have been a socially supportive group, but that's an entirely different thing. And there was one stage that de Kooning said, you know, it would be a disaster to name ourselves, but they were named nonetheless. And that's not the way we perceive them. And, you know, the American Impressionists were a category of their own. And there was Avery, who was who's floating somewhere in the middle. Now, it's a kind of interesting question as to whether an artist kind of categorizes himself by throwing in their lot with another group of like-minded people or whether it's it's something that, that's rather imposed upon them, like abstract expressionism. But occupying that middle ground, I think, has been a consistent issue in how Avery is perceived and how he's remembered and whether he's remembered. You know, we don't we don't forget artists who are, are very much part of a movement. And I'm kind of thinking of, you know, the top five abstract expression as painters. You know, we we always think of them as being part of that. And somehow it, it keeps them in our heads and maintains this consistent relevance. But, you know. Avery was a very singular character, and I think that he, throughout his life, was very resistant to joining any group or any club or any affiliation, and instead very much ploughed his own furrow. Now, I, I guess most of the abstract expressionist painters, if you ask them a question about their, their artistic independence, they would claim to be totally independent. And maybe that's maybe that's true, but, but Avery's influences were were vast. And each one contributed a small amount rather than any one influence really determining his future. I think the show demonstrates everything you just said. It starts with Avery, at least chronologically, it starts with Avery making American Impressionism. And it closes with Avery engaging with Abex painters, Gottlieb and, and Rothko especially, so if we look at those or, or, or think about those early impressionistic, if you will, paintings that Avery is making kind of in the 19 teens, you know, during and at the end of, say, World War One, what does he take from those pictures that he carries into his more mature work in the 20s and 30s, late 20s and 30s? 
I think I think he took very important lessons from that that he did adhere to. And what was very important for him is painting directly from the motif, is being outdoors, looking at the scene. He was painting in a small scale, as many of the Impressionists did, and capturing the scene. So it was that that sense of the verisimilitude of what he was depicting was of enormous importance to him. So, you know, I always get the impression that Avery felt that he was, it was almost a moral issue to depict what was in front of you and not to invent anything. And and I think that was a lesson that he learned from the Impressionists. And, you know, when you look at those early paintings by Avery, which had been so little seen, I mean, those, the, the pictures that we're showing in the exhibition, those early works from the, the teens, as you say, it's the first time anyone has seen them. But I think they tell such an interesting story about his beginning. And you also see in them what his particular preoccupations were in capturing the landscape. He was very interested in the composition of the work and getting that framing of the landscape in a particular way. And he was already adept at understanding devices. If you have the tree ending at one end and the river down below, you you know, just understanding how compositions work but also how to how to make light work you could see that he was really engaged in trying to trying to develop the effect of light in those work and he used impasto paint where he smoothed each of the little elements that he applied with a palette knife so that you had this very polished surface so that put together you have this surface that's able to give a kind of really variegated light so that light b- bounces off it and although he changed his painting method considerably by the end of, you know, when we get to the, the point of the 40s and 50s and his paint was much thinner, he was still really concerned in how to develop the effects of light, but was doing it in a completely different way. There are a couple paintings that show Avery kind of zooming ahead, zooming through European art history. There's Setting Sun from 1918, which is kind of a, a Rousseau, Theodore, Theodore Rousseau engagement with landscape. And then if we consider moody landscape from 1930, which is super Vuillardian, super Bernardian. It's a terrific painting where it's a, it's a scene right out of Bernard or Vuillard, but isn't painted like they paint, isn't, you know, the paint isn't handled or treated the way they paint. You know, what, what in this, this moment as the 1920s are going on and as we get into 1930, what do we see Avery doing and embracing when it comes to European modernism? I think he's developing an understanding of European modernism. You know, he's not yet at the point, it's not until 25, I think, that he goes to New York and spends time in galleries. He's looking at the subject in a slightly different way. He's understanding that all of these different influences can come to bear in his work. I think that his particular consideration, you know, when you think of the the, the 20s and going into the 30s and how... It was it was cubism and surrealism that really kind of caught a foothold in America that then led to abstract expressionism, because without those two movements, you, abstract expressionism wouldn't have developed in the way it did. But Avery had no instinct for that. He was much more interested in the French Impressionist painters and fauvism. And I think that that's that's something that becomes very evident in those works of the of the mid late 20s. And he's. He's finding his own style as well. I think by that stage, he's also kind of, he has dropped the influence of, of artists like Lawson and Twatchman, and he is, he's really discovering 
the possibilities of his own style. And what's fascinating is the rapidity in which he moves through developments of that style until he gets to the 30s, where you feel as if there's this element of, of a kind of security. Well, speaking of his own direction, is there a moment or a painting or a couple of paintings where you think he, he fully arrives into his own maturity, into what an Avery will be? Yeah, I mean, one of the things he does, and I, and I find it fascinating, is that he there's a couple of points in the exhibition and a couple of paintings that we've included where he almost gets ahead of himself. And one of the ones I was, I'm so fascinated by is Rolling Hills from the 1930s. There's not an exact date on it, but it's, it's circa 1930s. And it's as if he is anticipating how he's going to be painting 30 years later. I find that really an extraordinary work. The palette is still much darker. The detail is, is more present than in some of the later works. You know, that is a real example of him showing where he, he's going to go and possibly not even realizing it himself. Another interesting comparison I find is when he's in New York and he's trying to look for subject matter which feels more comfortable to him, you know, really the natural world and the nearest he could get when he wasn't in his summer vacations was Coney Island. And there's two paintings done in the same year. One of them is, is called Coney Island and the other one is called Seaside. And they're incredibly different. So you can you get that sense that he's really working things out. He's experimenting like mad. Coney Island is is full of people. And those devices that we understand from Western perspective with the, the bodies lying in the sand, which are foreshortened, which give that sense of depth and then the, the kind of the throng of people behind them. That's kind of such a complicated composition, but fascinating. It feels both modern and traditional at the same time, but really it evokes this sense of place. And yet Seaside is so stylized. And you see already he's kind of breaking down the canvas into into bands of background, which is is, is quite prescient as to what happened later, not just with his own work, with, but with the development of abstract expressionism. And then has these highly stylized figures dotted around the beach. I think there are moments, there's a few moments like that in the exhibition, which I hope people will be as fascinated by as I am. So Seaside and Coney Island are both paintings from 1931. Coney Island seems like a look at America and American painting, specifically George Bellows, who was famously uneven. And Seaside, the second painting about which you talked, it feels like Avery discovering and beginning to reckon with Matisse. Matisse from about 1908, 1909 on. And then Matisse stays a primary importance to Avery for, I don't know, 15 years or so. What do we know about how Avery found Matisse and what do you see Avery is taking from Matisse? It's interesting what he takes from Matisse. And it's it's interesting that he also never kind of acknowledged Matisse's influence on him. And, and, and I find that interesting. It's not just that I, I don't think that any artist really wants to ever claim that, you know, there was a major influence. Although, you know, Picasso talked about, you know, good artists copy. I 
think that his understanding of Matisse was something that developed during his time in when he arrived, first arrived in New York. And by the time he was taken on by the Pierre Rosenberg Gallery in the 1940s, he was seeing Matisse not just in exhibitions at MoMA, but he actually was able to go through the racks in the Rosenberg Gallery and, and, and kind of, you know, physically encounter them and measure up his own work against them. And I think that was the point at which his understanding of Matisse became more acute. So, yes, you know, Seaside is an example of him beginning to kind of reckon with Matisse and and, and think about how elements of, of Matisse's way of approaching art could be developed within his own work. But it becomes a much more sophisticated dialogue by the time we get to the 1940s. And I think that's to do with accessibility. And when he gets into the kind of what we call the breakthrough period, which is the 1944-45, where he's really kind of just hit this confidence where so many of the experimentation that he'd been doing the previous decade really kind of comes together in this kind of perfect balance to do with the colour and form. I think Matisse's presence is very clear. But at the same time, although that that is true and it is clear, there's other influence that have also brought been brought to bear in his work. A good example of that is Still Life with Skull from 1946. There there are plenty of Matisse nods in the picture, but there are plenty of other artists he's looking at too. I mean, most of all Cezanne and Brock. The orange comes right out of Brock. Yeah. And the, the subject matter is, is, is very Cezanne and also the view, the way that he presents the work on the surface is very Cezanne-like as well. We don't know, no one really knows, and maybe the artist didn't even know himself whether all of these different influences were in there. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't imagine that he would be painting this thinking, oh, this is very Cezanne and that that's very Brock. I, it, it kind of doesn't work like that. These influences become absorbed and, and subsumed somehow into his own sort of artistic understanding and, and then are translated into the Avery style. It's not just European moderns that Avery is, is looking at and building from. He's obviously spending a lot of time with Hartley, not just for his great <laughs> ghostly 1943 portrait of Hartley that's in Boston and which is in your show, but also in Hartley's paintings of birds. In Hartley's paintings, the, the birds are often dead and they're often against flat backgrounds. Avery does birds, but differently. How, do, how does Avery do them? And, and I guess, do you, do you agree? Is he kind of jumping off from Hartley's interest in birds and I guess perhaps Audubon's too? Oh, I think Audubon comes into play very much as well. And yes, I, th- I think he is. He's, he's taking from both. One of the wonderful things that Avery does is place figures and animals, birds in this case, in the landscape. And he's able to I mean, birds are a separate example, but, you know, he's able to cross genres in a kind of remarkable way and have this fusion of, of you know, that there's also that very odd painting from around a similar time as Oyster Catcher, which is the hors d'oeuvre. And I just think that's such a humorous work to put a still life with a backdrop of a landscape. It's kind of glorious and mad at the same time, but but compositionally utterly fascinating. But something like Oyster Catcher, I just think that is the most remarkable work. The background of the um, Oyster Catcher is is very static, beautifully described, very, very muted, complementary colors, but very static. 
But there's something very kind of physical and urgent about the oyster catcher. And I love the way that he spans, the bird spans the canvas with the, the last leg. You know, he's he's moving. That last leg is almost at the edge of the canvas. The beak isn't far from the from the left-hand side. So he's really kind of stretching across the composition. Although he really wasn't using impasto at this stage, he was thinning down his paints. He's made an exception and there's elements of impasto on the bird's wing. It, it's it's just got volume. And then when you compare sooty turns to it, and I think that is even more influenced by Audubon, sooty turns to me is, I mean, it's another really remarkable work because it's almost like the two birds together, very stylized, but it's almost like a piece of, of sculpture that would be, would have been contemporary for Avery. So I'm kind of thinking, well, it's, it's, you know, there's a colder element to that, or there's a, you know, is there, is there a Herbert Ferber element to that? You know, Brock again, of course, that's got a real presence. And then that wonderful patterning that sits behind it. So the detail of those birds is reduced. So you've just got that kind of single color, but unlike oyster catcher, he's all of the detail is in the background. So he's kind of flipped that relationship. The next, or the last, I guess, really, big moment of transition seems to come in 1952-53 with two paintings. One is a gouache and watercolor on paper. Pretty good-sized gouache, must be said. And one is an oil painting. What are those two pictures, and what is the transition they, they mark? What are the pictures that you're... Oh, sorry. Excursion on the Thames. Excursion, right. Okay. Okay. So they mark that those particular works came from his only visit to Europe. So for someone who was so in awe of European modernism to make only one visit and to do it quite late in his life was interesting. And he apparently did the sketches for that. That was another example of Avery not doing the paintings on plein air. He would he would do the drawings in the looking at the scene and then he would translate them into into oil paintings and, and more developed works on paper, the gouache, a little bit later. But he did that on a trip to the Thames, to the Tate Gallery, which is on the Thames. And apparently his energy levels were somewhat reduced by this stage. I'm giving you a bit of an anecdote here, but his energy levels were much reduced at that stage because he'd had hit the first of his heart attacks. And he had sufficient energy to either go into the museum and look at the paintings or to capture the scene. And he decided to sit in the steps and capture the scene and then painted it later, which I think tells us a lot about Avery, that much as he was interested in the work of others, his own came first. And I'm really delighted that we're able to show both in the exhibition because I think that what you get is that, again, it goes back to the lessons he learned from the American Impressionists, that faithfulness to the original scene and that the painting and the work on paper are very, very similar, that the difference is really one of scale. And in both of them, he's paring back so much of the detail. He's just kind of reducing, slightly distorting, flattening. But there's enough there to recognize exactly what it is. And you've got this scratched out, the far bank of the Thames, the scratched out outline of, of some of the, the built environment of the city. And the, the colors that he's, the non-associative colors, I guess they must have been non-associative colors that he describes the, the boat are kind of a wonderful compositional device. The show closes with eight or ten pictures in which Avery is in 
full discourse with abstract expressionism. What does he take from Abex and integrate into his work? And, and maybe even more interestingly, what does he reject? What does he keep from what had interested him his entire career to that point? Well, he had kind of seen, because of his, his early friendship with Mark Rothko, he met Mark Rothko in 1928 when they showed together at the Opportunity Gallery. And of course, at that stage, Rothko and then later Gottlieb, who he met, and, and finally Barnett Newman. But Rothko and, and Gottlieb were painting figuratively when Avery first met them. So he really did witness the whole trajectory of a movement through those particular artists. He also witnessed Matisse's paring down of detail so that he was really at the point where his works had that abstract quality. But Avery, and again, this goes back to the American Impressionist, Avery was always painting a subject, whereas the subject of Rothko's painting was one, one of the describing the emotions. Avery was describing life. He was describing what was going on around him. And that was very important to him and he never lost it. So although the works have an appearance of being abstracted, Rothko and Gottlieb, who, who used to holiday with him at kind of painting holidays, and certainly they did in Provincetown in those last years where he had, I think it was five consecutive years where he visited he visited Provincetown. Undoubtedly, their, their work and seeing their work would have had an impact on him. We know from his past work that he was very observant of others and was able to take elements from other people's work and put it into his own. But he was still describing the subject. And the titles are sometimes the only thing that remind us of that. You know, when you have something like Boathouse by the Sea or Black Sea or Beach Blankets, these are works that, you know, otherwise you, you, you would just assume that they're, they're abstract. But he was still describing something. And that was something that he was clearly very important to him. I think in terms of technique, his scale got bigger. So when you think of the early work, the only really big work that he did was circus. And then after that, it was not until he was in Provincetown that he he decided to work on a larger scale, which was, was very similar to the one that, you know, Rothko was working on. Edith Devaney, thanks so much. You're very welcome. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.